Thanks. <clears throat> Thanks. Good afternoon. So uh, I flew over from the U.S. yesterday, and consequently, I was awake at uh, three o'clock this morning. So I checked my uh, my New York Times, uh, and a couple of stories stood out. One that the surgeons, a group of surgeons at the Cleveland Clinic, are gearing up for the first uterus transplant in a patient uh, in the United States. Uh, this is uh, groundbreaking. It's, uh, it turns out uh, the Swedish uh, uh, surgeons have, have done a handful of these cases before. But for women suffering from infertility, uh, it's bringing a new treatment option to them, maybe 50,000 a year, they, they think. That's very exciting. I scrolled down and found another story about a 58-year-old woman in, who went missing for three days in New York City after having been discharged from a New York hospital alone and suffering from schizophrenia and dementia. And the article explored what happened. It didn't get to the bottom of why it happened, but it described uh, uh, for from the perspective of the family members uh, what that experience was like. And those two stories in a single day of the New York Times uh, pretty much frame out what we see, not only in the United States, but around the world, the best and the worst of healthcare. We have an enormous gap between what should be, what could be, with current capabilities, and the grim realities of what people do still experience every day. And what I want to talk about is... How do we close this healthcare gap? What role can technology and mHealth play in that? What is the promise, the potential, uh, but what are some of the pitfalls that we have to work our way through as well? There's a, million sm a billion smartphones out there. There's 165,000 wellness and, and health apps. Yet we've, we've hardly begun to close the healthcare gap. And it's a simple concept. As I say, it's the difference between the current state, what we experience day to day, what our family members experience day to day, and what we know could be. Jeff has just given uh, us a great example of what it could be, and indeed what it is already for, uh, for, for some patients. This healthcare gap uh, can be measured. It should be measured. It should be tracked. It can be measured both in terms of patient outcomes, patient satisfaction, and cost to the healthcare system. We took a look at this through the perspective of medicine use a couple of years ago, because we know that while a trillion dollars is spent this year on drugs of all, of all types around the world, we know that often those drugs are not being used optimally by the patient, by the healthcare professional, the, and therefore the full value of that trillion dollars is not being uh, achieved. And what we did was seek to quantify what impact does that inappropriate use of drugs or that less than optimal use of drugs have on the overall healthcare system. And uh, with a lot of modeling and number crunching, we came up with, uh, with an answer of just on $500 billion a year annually that we could pinpoint as being related uh, to the 
suboptimal use of medicines and where those costs could have been avoided. So that's half a trillion dollars uh, a year. Uh, it's a not inconsiderable sum. It's a way to get some people's attention about the healthcare gap. But of course, when we look at health outcomes, we look at the rising tide of, uh, of diabetes, as, as Jeff referenced, as well as the aging of the population. We know that we have to work on closing this healthcare gap. Meanwhile, technology is proliferating around this. Uh, Roberto mentioned uh, some of this, uh, what we see going on with respect to uh, diagnosis and monitoring, whether it be the uh, uh, remote monitoring and, and diagnostic tools that are now available, or the genetic sequencing that's going on. You know, China's uh, working towards sequencing a million Chinese and putting all that information uh, in one place to be uh, to be used for research purposes. Um, or whether it's the, the home monitors that can now be put in place to enable the elderly to remain living independently for longer. In prevention and treatment, there's a lot going on. The pharmaceutical industry uh, has a pipeline of, of products that's, uh, that, that's actually never been stronger. We're forecasting uh, over the next five years there'll be 225 new um, molecules uh, approved and launched into the marketplace. Um, a lot of them focused on cancer, about a third of them. A lot of them focused on rare diseases for which there are very limited or no uh, current treatments, as well as in other disease areas. Uh, we also see the first uh, chip on a, on a pill, the Proteus uh, pill that's been submitted to the FDA uh, for, for approval. That brings forward a, a vast new potential in terms of uh, being able to actually monitor the patient uh, use of, of the medicine and the body's physiological reaction uh, to that. Uh, we have the first FDA-approved 3D-printed pill uh, that, that was uh, approved uh, last month. Again, bringing a whole new set of opportunities for truly customizing and personalizing uh, drugs in the future. And then we've got the technology advances we're all personally familiar with around communication, whether that be the smart, the smartphones, uh, the, the, the linkages to social media, uh, and so on. And we have this enormous explosion in the amount of uh, digital information that's being generated, but also it's, it's being aggregated, it's being accessed, it's being analyzed, and it can be used uh, to inform decision-making. So these advances are going on all around us, uh, and mobile health apps are, are very much a part of that story, bringing forward new tools, powerful tools, that can help address this uh, healthcare gap. And whether that be uh, the smartphone app linked to a, a diagnostic uh, or, or monitoring device, uh, whether it can be the transfer of information from a smartphone uh, app up to a healthcare professional or to some other third party uh, for, their, for their use, or whether it's that app connecting uh, the patient to their social network and friends, which we know is a very important uh, driver of uh, improved patient outcomes. And that, those apps and their use um, can be a very powerful disruptor. Again, we've, we've already been using the term uh, disruption and, and, and how it's playing out. 
Uh, and it doesn't matter which part of technology and innovation you look at, uh, we can we can make the connection to to a disruption in the healthcare system, uh, whether it be patients feeling more connected with their own healthcare. Uh, again, Jeff gave a, a great demo of that. Whether it be providing providers with new forms of information. Uh, so that they actually do know something about their patient other than the two hours a year that they might see them face-to-face. They have a means uh, to be monitoring patients on an ongoing basis. Payers. Payers are also uh, important uh, com- parts of the healthcare system. They are there to make uh, better choices and decisions about, uh, about cost-effectiveness, about what they pay for and when, what level of reimbursement they provide, and so on. And the information that can be derived from the use of mobile apps can be uh, a a very useful input for for payers to utilize. And then manufacturers, drug manufacturers, um, other device diagnostic manufacturers also see that the combination of their technologies with apps can enable them to bring forward a, a bundle of value to patients that can help indeed deliver more value from, from the drugs or the devices than is possible on their own and therefore uh, improve their uh, contribution to the health system and the rewards that they get for that. So what's the current state of play? Because again, we can all get very caught up in the, the potential, the promise it's absolutely there. Uh, we can see it. We can touch it. We can hear about it. Uh, but to what extent is it systematically helping to reduce that healthcare gap? So we've issued a report a couple of months ago now where we took a look at what is out there with respect to mHealth apps, to consumer apps, apps that a patient can or a consumer can download. There's about 165,000 of them. Of course, that number is already out of date. Uh, and it's about double the number from when we looked at this uh, a couple of years ago. About 60% of those apps are focused on fitness, wellness, diet, exercise, uh, all very important. But a growing number are now specifically tailored towards uh, disease treatment, disease management, um, really what we would call part of the mainstream of healthcare delivery uh, from providers to patients and relevant uh, to that part of healthcare. 34% of them uh, connect to social media, up from about a quarter, uh, 26%. Uh, when we looked at this a couple of years ago. Uh, so that's an important trend, and, it, and, and it's a, a, a realization that uh, people want to be connected. They want to be able to share uh, their healthcare information with their peers, with their, with their social networks. 10% connect to a sensor. Um, you know, better than zero, um, but still relatively at the at the low end in terms of the the uh, uh, penetration of of sensors and devices integrated with with apps that that we see. On the perhaps less so exciting sign, you know, most apps still have very simple functionality. Uh, they provide information. They are very pedestrian. You might say they're very, you know, twentieth century in in many respects. Uh, downloads of, 
of these healthcare-related apps are also very skewed. 12% of apps account for 90% of the downloads. That doesn't quite strike us as being the optimal uh, sort of distribution of downloads if everybody had uh, uh, access to full inf information, perhaps, about those apps. And perhaps that's a reflection of the, of the reality that there are 165,000 apps, so how does anyone choose which one they want to uh, download? And the final point is important. Uh, to the extent that we, we think that in order to close that healthcare gap, one of the key issues is how to ensure that the apps are able to connect back into the healthcare system, to the provider uh, system. And only less than 5% uh, of the apps that we looked at enable that uh, connectivity and secure communication with, uh, with a healthcare professional. But there's some great apps uh, out there. Uh, I'm sure we missed uh, uh, Jeff's here, and I'm sure that uh, you should be on, on the list. But um, we've gone through and, and looked at the uh, functionality of the apps. We've looked at the evidence that's out there that the apps are actually uh, changing patient behavior in measurable quantitative uh, terms. We looked at other parameters as well. Um, and, and the good news is, again, when we sift through the 165,000, there's a lot of good news out there. Uh, it's just a little hard to find. And being hard to find is, we believe, a, a, a critical barrier to mHealth apps playing their full role in the health system. So again here, I'm, I'm focusing a little bit more on the part of our overall healthcare system that's focused on patients who are at some level going to uh, otherwise live shortened lives and or be very expensive to the healthcare system because that's what we, we want to be tackling uh, in order to improve our healthcare system. And in that context, this circle, this virtuous circle of, of adoption is, is critical, that you've got a healthcare professional in the mix who's able to make recommendations or indeed prescribe to a patient a particular tool, uh, an mHealth tool, that that physician is confident will help that, uh, that patient, that that patient is actually using uh, that tool uh, once they leave the office, that that tool, that app, whatever it may be, is generating information that at some level is making its way back uh, to the healthcare professional, enabling them to improve the care that they are providing back to the patient. So this is uh, one way of, of thinking about the, the flow uh, that, that should occur. One of the big barriers is that the physicians are very uncomfortable recommending anything to the patient when there's 165,000 apps out there and they don't have the time uh, on their own to uh, to take a look at that. So one of the one of the points that that we make in our report and and indeed within IMS Health we've we've built a capability to actually curate apps on behalf of healthcare professionals provider uh, organizations uh, so that they can sit with their patient with a curated set of apps and, and use that as the basis for recommending what, what might really help the patient uh, with their care. And that curation is based on, on six inputs. Uh, it's based on evaluations from other uh, physicians or, or peers. It's based on 
consumer feedback, the ex consumer experiences uh, is critical as, as we all know, so we need to factor that in. Uh, it includes the um, functionality of the app. To what extent does it uh, does it really uh, you know provide a lot of uh, not only content but also means uh, to engage with the, with the patient? Is there some sort of endorsement of the app, particularly by a professional society? Um, is the app developer someone who's uh, likely to be iterating and improving uh, that app, or is this a one and done kind of a, a situation? Uh, and finally, what's the level of evidence out there, uh, preferably in peer-reviewed journals, but not necessarily, that this app actually works, that, that there has been some level uh, of uh, observation, observational trials, uh, if not uh, randomized uh, trials, that seek to quantify the impact of the, the app. We think that those are the six inputs that will really help uh, uh, healthcare apps be able to be embraced by healthcare professionals uh, in, in the system. And what we notice is that when a healthcare professional is involved in recommending uh, to a patient a particular um, app, uh, we see a, a significantly higher levels of uh, what we're calling, calling the, the fill rate. Does the patient actually download the app? And the sustain rate. Are they still using that app 30, 30 days from now? And as we know, in, in the world of apps, there's often a very uh, dramatic drop-off after the first uh, couple of days. And what we're tracking here, based on actual data from actual uh, prescribers, physicians in actual uh, US-based healthcare systems, uh, we're seeing some, some pretty nice numbers. There's a lot of variability uh, still. We're still in early days of, of really optimizing how all this works, uh, but never, nevertheless, this is encouraging uh, to see. And we do think that it's that engagement of the healthcare professional that is uh, making a, a difference here. The other area we um, think is absolutely critical to finding their way into the mainstream and delivering the value they can and, and reducing that healthcare gap is, is evidence. Uh, so how do we know that this is actually going to help? And certainly a payer is always going to ask that question before uh, they agree to be supporting uh, these sorts of, of technologies. So again, here there's good news and there's bad news. Uh, the bad news is there's not a whole heck of a lot of great evidence out there. Uh, the good news is there's more than there was a couple of years ago, and we can see the trajectory is, uh, is steeply heading up. There's 300 clinical trials currently underway, registered at, at the clinicaltrials.gov website, that involve apps. Uh, so that's a good sign, but it'll take some time for those to uh, play out and, and be reported on. There's 580 peer-reviewed uh, articles uh, that report on research results that, that we could find. About 113 of those were based on specific diseases, were very quantitative in their approach, and we've, we've sort of mapped them here around the disease areas that they were focused on based on the relative quantity and quality of the evidence that was, uh, that, that, that emerged from that research and, and whether the research itself was positive or negative. You can see chronic pain is an area where there's still a lot 
uh, to learn in terms of what apps uh, can actually help a patient with uh, chronic pain. But again, we think this is good news that we can even draw this, uh, this chart. Two years ago when we tried to do it, uh, we stopped simply because there weren't enough uh, data points. There do remain some, uh, some significant barriers. Uh, we've talked about the lack of evidence. We've talked about the systematic integration, and it's not only in that flow of the physician and the patient and so on, but it's also importantly that flow of the information back uh, to the healthcare professional. Um, electronic health records tend to be rather closed systems, and the ability to uh, to, to be able to integrate uh, data that's derived from from apps is, is, remains uh, an important barrier. Patient access gaps. Most apps seem to be written for young 20-something-year-olds, um, most of whom are perfectly fit and well and, and healthy. Uh, fewer are, um, are focused on the elderly. Fewer are focused on uh, the, th- those with, uh, um, uh, with disabilities, for example. Uh, fewer are focused on family members who actually might be the, the more relevant uh, audience for those kinds of apps. Patient access gaps is, is a big deal. Uh, data privacy and security. Uh, no one wants to be transferring information without uh, confidence that there is security. The good news is, again, it's, it's, uh, it's possible and available. Uh, it's just not always embedded in the apps that are out there. And then finally, reimbursement challenges. Who's going to get paid for this? And at some point in every healthcare system, uh, money does uh, talk and, and, and have a big impact on, on what happens. I want to leave you with some thoughts for, particularly for those of you who come from life sciences companies. We, we, we work and engage a lot with that part of the healthcare system. Uh, what I would challenge every life science company, uh, to do is first to, to know what role they play, their products, their drugs, uh, may play in closing that healthcare gap and be very clear about what that role is. Um, assess the power of mHealth in conjunction with your medicines. What difference could a combination of some aspect of mHealth make in enabling your drug to deliver more value and, and help close that gap? What does that mean for other stakeholders? Especially, what does it mean to the patient, of course, but what does it mean for the healthcare professional? Uh, because if you don't get them on board, then you're always going to be playing outside where the, the vast majority of, of the healthcare system operates uh, and where the, where the money is spent. So understanding those implications and also the implications for the payers are very critical. Develop the evidence that's required. Uh, invest in bringing forward the data that you can stand behind in front of a physician or a payer or a patient uh, in support of, of your... Um, and share the success. We don't talk enough yet about all of the good things that are going on here and there uh, and elsewhere, let's uh, find a way to actually share those more systematically so that we can jointly work on closing that massive healthcare gap. Thank you.